treasure most? What is it in your life that you would deem worth giving up or losing absolutely everything to obtain if that were deemed necessary, if that were required? I want you to think about that question and your response and what all that means as we work through our, our text this morning. What is it that you treasure most? But before we dive in, I want to draw your attention back to chapter 1, verse 3. If you would, take your Bibles, flip to chapter 1, verse 3. Keep your finger there, marking uh, chapter 17. But chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. These words at the start of this book serving as a needed reminder to us this morning that the most important part of any sermon, the most important part of any service is the reading of God's word to God's people. Not my exposition of it. Not the, the singing of the songs, though we cherish those things, but the reading of God's word. Also a reminder to us that this letter was written for the purpose of being read out loud to the church with the expectation that those who hear it will heed what it says. As the, as the warning is, for the time is near. And this serves as an additional reminder to us this morning because the text today that we're going to be reading is a bit longer than normal. But I want to ask you, if you would have not already to open your Bibles to have the word of God before you this morning take your device if you don't have your hard copy of the Bible with you flip to the app and follow along engage with the text see it before you consider the question again as we do what is it we treasure most where does our heart affections where do they turn so picking up in revelation chapter 17 verse 1 then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me come i will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was, a, was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? 
I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. It's calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And then ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, for they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, the mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off. 
in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchant of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off, in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all the wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman or any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on earth. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So last week, last week we looked at the seven bowls of God's wrath. Seven bowls representing a complete and final judgment of God. A final judgment coming upon the entire world that is both deserved and just. And the only way to be saved from this judgment is by taking shelter by faith under the the seal of Christ's blood. Which is then evidenced as being genuine by our faithfully following him. And then we turn the page and we read what we read today. And it seems to indicate that there's still more judgment taking place. Which, if you're thinking through this, may leave you asking, okay, how can what is described as final and complete with the seven bowls still have stuff that follows it? How can that be? How can something be final and then be followed by something else? It seems to be contradictory. So we've got the destruction of Babylon here in our text today, followed by the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which indicates a, a completeness, a finality. It's done. It's finished. But then chapter 19, as we'll look at next week, the rest of chapter 19, follows with the destruction of the beast and the, the false prophet. And then chapter 20 follows with the destruction of Satan. And we'll see the the book of life then mentioned again. And we're going to see a final battle mentioned again. And we're like, okay, how many final battles can there be? Which is why it's probably best in studying the book of Revelation not to think about the events in this book in an exact chronological sense as we're kind of prone to do. But rather to think about them and to process them thematically. So like describing different scenes of the same event that is taking place. I thought about like how do we illustrate this? How do we describe this? And Take for instance, you, you go to a high school football game. Someone asks you to describe the band performance at halftime. How do you describe that performance? How, how do you begin to, to do so? Do you just come back and say, well, it was good. 
Maybe that's how your, your children come home from school. How was your day? It, it was good. It was fine. I'm like, I want more details, please. <laughs> I, I would like a, a description of the band performance. Maybe you begin to think about how to expound that. You want more, so what do you, what do you give? Just imagine you've, you've come home from that band performance, and you're, you're blown away by the performance. And you come home and you begin like, I'm going to write this down. <laughs> I'm going to write down what I experienced at this band performance. What's that going to look like? Are you going to write down, well, they played a song from the Pirates of the Caribbean and it was good. You might, but you're not a really good writer if that's the case. And you're not really describing what took place. So what do you do? Because at a band performance, you've got all kinds of moving parts, Right? All over the field and all the various instruments that are there, the, the various sections of instruments that are all coming together as in unison to, to complete the whole, moving in their parts and their footwork and their patterns. And they're not falling over like dominoes like I would if I were out there. Like they know where they're going and they're moving along the way. And, and you You've got all of that taking place. You've got the color guard and their costumes and their motions and their energy. And you can't forget the response from the crowd. And you've got the parents all up in their video cameras that are just filming. And like they all go up at one time. All of these things taking place in one moment. So how do you describe it? One scene at a time. But it's all one scene. Oh, yes, but you describe one thing at a time. Some of it happening chronologically, yes. But a lot of it all happening at the exact same time. And that's kind of what we have here in the text. So so much to describe. And oh, John, bless his heart, he, he's doing the best that he can to describe it all. And praise the Lord, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So that's way better than us trying to describe something. He's telling us this, but he's saying, then I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw this. And he's, he's just writing it all down. Angel's saying, write this down. He's like, okay, here I go. He's writing it all. Multiple descriptions of the same thing unfolding. Impossible for him to describe it all at once or even in full. Oh, but John sure is trying. (laughs) He's trying to write it all down, trying to use imagery and things to be able to bring the reality of this into our minds. And the portion he's attempting to describe today is the destruction of Babylon. That's the picture before us this morning, which begs the question, What does Babylon represent? What does Babylon represent? Because the actual city and empire of Babylon had long been conquered by this point in biblical history. Rome was now the big dog on the block. The Babylonians were the ones that God used to take out the mighty Assyrian empire. If you remember through Old Testament history, Assyria had come in and had taken out the the northern kingdom of Israel, taken them into exile. They were the big dog on the block. And then came along Babylon and conquered mighty Assyria. Assyria there one moment, gone the next. Then Babylon comes and they conquer Jerusalem, southern kingdom, taken into exile. 
Babylon and all of its idolatry being the scene for King Nebuchadnezzar and the famous stories that are found in the book of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel in the lion's den. Babylon herself then falling later to the Persians. But from the name alone, we have the imagery of idolatry, paganism, power, immorality, seduction, the vivid reminder of the temporary nature of earthly kingdoms, all of which aligns with what we see here in chapter 17, with Babylon being presented, how? As a seductive woman, a great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Which then begs the question, what are the many waters that she's seated on? And to get our answer to that question, let's look down to verse 15 there in chapter 17, which tells us the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples in multitudes in nations and languages. Meaning the waters that she's seated on are representative of all the nations of the world. And it's with Babylon that the kings and the leaders of the nations of this world have done what? Have committed sexual immorality. And the dwellers of the earth, the people of the earth, have done what? Text tells us have become drunk off of her wine. The woman, Babylon, pictured as seductively intoxicating to every class of people in the world. Verse 4 telling us the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adored with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual morality. She's so beautifully attractive, tempting and enticing in nearly every way. But her cup is filled with what? with abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Meaning, lay with her, and she may very well bring you momentary pleasure, but she will kill you in the end. As what she offers is sin that leads to death. And at its core, the sin that she offers is rooted in idolatry and false worship. See, Satan attacks Christians in numerous ways, as we're well aware. But two key ways we find here are, one, through the beast. We looked at back in chapter 13, if you remember. The beast representing the idea of state governments which is why the seven churches originally reading this letter would have understood the beast to be the Roman Empire. That is, the, the overall Roman government system with Caesar at its, as, as its emperor attacking the church with power and persecution in an effort to destroy and to, to silence the witness of the church and ultimately force the church, and this is really getting at its core, ultimately forced the church and all people in one way or another to worship the beast 
like we saw with attempts with Sh in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like we saw in the attempts of Daniel in the lion's den. The beast serving as a, a false or counterfeit Messiah. Promising many things. Promising prosperity and protection and peace. Maybe even providing it in some ways. Doing so in ways that in and of themselves aren't, aren't even bad, but can easily become idols of our hearts that our hearts will find longing for if we're not careful. See, church, if our hope and prosperity and protection, ideas of, of peace are, are found in the things of this world, the idol factory of our sinful heart is already proving itself to be well at work. And that's where Babylon comes into play. As the second way that we see, the, see Satan attacking Christians in our text today is through the seduction of Babylon. See, while the original seven churches would have understood the, the beast to be the Roman Empire, they would have understood Babylon to be the actual city of Rome. With all of her beauty and all of her wealth and all of her splendor and all of her opportunity. So in a narrow example, one again that never fully does its job, but a narrow example, think of, think of a singer or an actor or actress that moved to places like Nashville and L.A. and New York City to, to hit it big. Or going with dreams in their minds. Or, or maybe the person who's going to Vegas to strike it rich. The odds of any of these things actually happening are, are slim to none. But the dreams these cities promise, promise to fulfill, are, are, are feeding the idols that are already festering in the person's heart. Longing to go because the possibility... See, the city of Rome brings the seduction of false satisfaction, which in turn is a false salvation. Cities and modern cultures throughout history have long brought with them the promise of a better life. That's how this country was founded. So I think about the, the refugee or the, the immigration crisis in America today. Why do so many want to, to come here? And even make such sacrifices to do so. What, what brings them to this point and longing to come? Because they believe the promise of a better life awaits. If I can just get to America, then everything will be okay. That's why our forefathers came. And then at the same time, we have some, not all by any means, but some American citizens wanting to do everything they can to to keep immigrants and refugees out in order to preserve a, a practice or a way of life that fulfills the idea of the promise of a better life that they have bought into, their idea of an American dream. And I don't bring this up to be intentionally political, though I, I know that it is. I bring this up as an illustration because at the root of both is the same sin. Idolatry, false worship, 
which is at the heart of most of our politics and decision-making today. See, when we get right down to it, the problem isn't Babylon. The problem isn't Rome or any other city or country or culture in the world. It's the idol factories that exist within our sinful hearts. The seduction that Babylon or New York City or Vegas or Nashville or L.A. or D.C. or, or the American dream bring is tempting and enticing sinful hearts to give us what we already so desperately desire. Here it is. And Satan knows knows a vast number of people will worship Caesar to get it. But friends, it's all a counterfeit gospel. And yet, even in knowing that, even in knowing that it's a counterfeit gospel, it doesn't change the power of her seduction. And that goes for even really, really strong Christians. We're all tempted. Just look at verse 6. Look at John's response to this vision at the end of verse 6. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Notice how John is enamored with her beauty and all the promises and opportunities that she offers. To which the angel in verse 7 asks, why do you marvel? And then the angel points out that what John's marveling at and what we're all tempted to marvel at is nothing more than a counterfeit. Case in point, again, with the beast in verse 8. Look with me at verse 8 where it says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Friends, does that language sound familiar to you? When you stop and you think about it, you process, does that language sound familiar to you? It, it should. Flip back with me to chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. As it reads, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then now look down with me at verse 17. Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Church, who is saying these words? Jesus. These are the words of Jesus, and the angel telling John the beast that he's marveling at is nothing more than a counterfeit Christ. But John sure was tempted to marvel, as are we tempted to marvel. Again, the, the counterfeiting nature of our enemy who is who's doing everything he can to seduce us into false worship, false security, false salvation. Babylon preaching the false gospel of the counterfeit Messiah, preaching how to have your best life now. And yet people throughout history continue to worship at 
her altar of destruction as they marvel and desire and clamor after all that she has to offer. You want hope? Here you go. Want prosperity? Here it is. Want protection? We'll provide it. Want freedom? Come live the dream. But here's the reality. We can't worship the beast and faithfully follow Christ. So again, two types of people in this world. Those who worship and follow the beast and those who worship and follow Christ. There's no position of neutrality found within Scripture. Again, verse 8 telling us, And the dwellers of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Meaning the opposite is also true. Those whose names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the Christ who was and is and is to come. Which brings about the all-important question of personal application here. In who or what do you find yourself marveling? Not who are you tempted to marvel? Because like John, we're all tempted to marvel at the Babylons of this world and all that they have to offer. There's none of us who are exempt from this temptation. But to whom or what does our true worship belong? To whom or what are we faithful to above all else? Faithfulness, not void of temptation, but the faithful remaining faithful in spite of the temptation. As those with Christ are called chosen and faithful everyone else will be conquered by the lamb because friends here's what's coming Babylon will fall Babylon will fall look with me at chapter 18 verse 2 fallen fallen is Babylon the great All the beauty, all her power, all her riches, gone in an instant. The text telling us it's it's now a dwelling place for demons. The only ones feasting here are unclean birds like vultures, scavengers, eating the dead who scatter her streets. All the nations who drank her wine, destroyed. Which is why in the midst of this horrific image comes a warning. A voice from heaven saying in verse 4 of chapter 18, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part of her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. It's the call to get out now while you still can. It's the call to repent. Turn away from your sin now while you still can. Turn to Christ. I read this and I'm reminded of the story of Lot's wife in Genesis chapter 19. God promising to to bring destruction upon the city of Sodom. 
Abraham praying, Lord, spare the city for the righteous. But ultimately, as that story progresses, there are no righteous to be found. Only God's undeserved mercy and grace falls upon Lot and his family. Angels then urging Lot to take his daughters and his wife, his family, and flee the city. Get out now, lest they be destroyed. And what do they do? They linger. Not heeding the warning. They linger. God then says, okay, I'm sending my angels. They take you out. He takes them out. And Lot and his family are told, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. I mean, the the words escape for your life are, are pretty big words. Key words there being do not look back or stop anywhere. Just go. Then the Lord rained down sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying these great cities. And what did Lot's wife do? She looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. And the question is, why did she look back? Why did she look back? Why do we look back? Because she was lamenting what she'd lost. Her treasure was in Sodom. Which is again the question. Where is our treasure found? Number three, we we must not lament over that which will not last. The image we're given in verse 11 being, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Meaning they mourn the loss of what their hearts worship. That's what Lot's wife did. That's what we do. Looking back and longing for what brings us joy, lamenting over the loss of, of idols we've left behind or things that have been taken away, clinging to the treasures of this world and days gone by. The word here in verse 14 is the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, never to be found again. The church is such a tragic declaration that what their soul longed for, what their soul treasured, what they likely spent a lifetime building and accumulating is gone in an instant which is the fate of all of it. The Lot's wife looking back and lamenting, lamenting that which is no more. Are we? Will we? God's word telling us here, don't lament over that which will be destroyed in a single hour. Rather, look to Christ who is our treasure. Keep eyes fixed upon him who was and is 
and is to come. And don't look back. That's the parable of the treasure in the field. An all too familiar, hopefully familiar parable of a, of a man who finds a treasure in a field. He goes then and sells everything in order to buy the field. Why? Such a great field? No, because of the treasure that's in the field. He doesn't care about the field. He wants the treasure. Gave up everything. Sold everything he had because he saw the value of the treasure. Friends, the point of the parable is the treasure is Jesus. The same Jesus, the rich young ruler, came expressing a desire to follow. I want to follow you, Jesus. Jesus then gives him the opportunity, knowing the true condition of the man's heart. The man refuses. Why does he refuse? Because Jesus, Jesus told him to sell everything he had and give it to the poor and then come and to follow him. Meaning the rich young ruler didn't see Jesus for the treasure that he is. My question to each of us today is, do we? Do, do you see Jesus for the treasure that he is? Do we, do we see and cherish Jesus for this treasure? Or do we find ourselves lamenting over the things that will not last? Again, looking back over days that have long been gone, not to return, rather than faithfully following Christ in the present no matter the cost. Now lastly, it's the call to rejoice in what all of heaven rejoices. Two places we see a call to rejoice here in this text. The first being in chapter 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. The call here is to rejoice over the fall of Babylon because of her deserved and just judgment. Don't lament over her. Rejoice. This is God's answer to our cries for all the wrongs in the world to be made right. Therefore, rejoice. He is a just God. Now let's be clear. This is not rejoicing over another's demise. This is a looking back when all is complete and all is done. And it's rejoicing that the justice of God has been, been served. Come. It's looking to God and saying, you are true and you are right and you are just and you are holy. And the only reason that we can come before you is by your grace and your mercy. It's rejoicing. Righteousness prevails. Now the second call is in chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. It's a picture of heavenly praise from the four living creatures and the 24 elders worshiping 
the one seated on the throne saying amen, hallelujah. A call from the throne to praise our God. All you his servants, you who fear him, small and great, praise him. To which the redeemed church responds in verse 5 with the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters. That is the roar of many nations, people from all the tribes, tongues, languages, nations. Like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride church has made herself ready. And the picture that enters my mind here that doesn't even remotely begin to do this justice, but it's a picture of of a pure and spotless bride being presented to her pure and spotless groom who's given everything for her to purchase her with a price that she cannot afford Presented on a wedding day. Doors in the back of the sanctuary open. Everyone stands and the bride is presented to her groom. The bride made ready. Clothed herself with fine linen. Bright and pure. And what is this fine linen she wears? What is this fine linen that the bride of Christ is adorned in? It's the righteous deeds of the saints. The righteous works of the saints. It's her, her, our faithfulness to God's word. It's the faithfulness of those who have conquered. It's the faithfulness of those who have remained faithful to the end. A people who kept their eyes on Christ as their treasure and have not looked back no matter the cost. Not by our work, but by the finished work of Christ in our life. Through the Spirit keeping us faithful to the end. Those who conquered being the ones and the only ones invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, feasting forever with the one who is the treasure of our heart. And then John, John so overcome with emotion in the moment, falls down and he worships who? The messenger. Like, oh, John, like you're doing so well, just like on the mountain of transfiguration. But he he's, falls down and he worships this angel, and the angel, the one being, bringing the message, who then quickly redirects John. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then there's an instruction. Worship God. Worship God. And that's the call, church. To worship God. Because we worship what and who we treasure. That's the question. Is what we treasure now able to be treasured forever? 
or will it be destroyed? Is Christ and Christ alone the treasure of your heart today? Or have you been seduced by the counterfeit treasures of this world? Do you have confidence you will feast with the marriage, with the marriage supper of the Lamb? And if so, what is the confidence based in? All questions we do well to honestly ask, wrestle with, and answer. And friends, I'm always happy to discuss. But now let's take the reading of God's Word, the explaining of God's Word, and let's turn now to the Lord in prayer and respond to God's Word. Oh Lord, we are a sinful people. And you are a holy God. Forgive us for marveling at things of this world in ways that place them in our hearts as little idols of worship. Well, even when we look at the thing of a, of a beautiful sunset or sunrise, let our attention not be turned to the creation. Let our attention and our heart's affections be turned to the Creator. When we see someone come to faith in Christ, let us not say, oh, look at how many, how I worded this or I did this. Oh, let us look and see, oh, what a mighty Savior. When we look to the uttermost parts of the world and we see hardened hearts, let us not say, oh, they're too hardened. Oh, Lord, if you can save us, you can save anyone. You are a gracious and merciful God but you are just and you are righteous and you are holy. And Lord, as we long for the day to feast the marriage supper of the Lamb, help us to be faithful until that day comes, proclaiming and pointing people to Christ, forsaking the idols of this world. Let you now in this moment, not just one day, but now be the object of our worship. And Lord, we say thank you for making it possible. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your love. Thank you that justice will be served in which we will rejoice. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.